Like a parent whose kids have been way too quiet for way too long, we are going to spend this episode figuring out what Satan is up to. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, like I said, we are going to figure out what Satan is up to. Having uh, built a bit of a foundation last episode about uh, what Satan can and cannot do, this episode is going to be continuing on and basically saying, okay, if that's true, if all that, you know, untraditional stuff that, that I've never heard before is true, then what is Satan actually doing? And that's what I want to talk about in this episode. So make sure you like and subscribe uh, to uh, help kind of build up the YouTube algorithm so that other people can see this. Make sure that you share it with others. Um, and remember that you can support me every month at patreon.com slash onward in the faith. So to recap last time, um, we we discussed really what Satan can and cannot do, especially compared to what we often say he can or cannot do. Uh, so we talked about how Satan is only recorded as speaking to three people in all of biblical history, and those were always people without sin natures. So Adam and Eve, who to that point had not sinned yet and therefore did not really understand anything other than obeying God. And then Jesus Christ, who, as we know, did not have a sin nature, which is what made him the perfect unblemished sacrifice for our own sins, because we had no hope without Jesus Christ. Uh, then we talked about how Satan is a spatial being with the same powers and limitations as any other angelic being. So we know that Satan was created. We know that he can only be in one place at a time. He can only know the things that he can observe. He cannot speak into our minds. He cannot read our minds. It was a whole thing. I would encourage you to check the last episode if you have not seen it yet. And finally, we concluded with the reality that Satan is not an evil version of God. He's not this evil thing who's not as strong as God, but almost, uh, we realize that he is just an angel, right? Just an angelic being who is just as powerful as any other angelic being out there. Uh, that doesn't mean that he is not real. It does not mean that he is not a threat, but he is, we need to keep him in his proper place. Um, and we, we hinted at the idea that Satan is an ancient enemy who has been around for at least probably 6,000 years. And that is a key thing that we need to understand is that Satan's not God who has all the knowledge, but he is a pretty smart cookie and he has had plenty of time to observe how humans work, what makes them tick, what draws them towards sin, how our sin natures actually work and things like that. So it's not like Satan is going into this blind, um, but I mean, you even think about it, you know, advertisers today right? People who get paid to, to tempt people to buy, you know, houses and cars and goods and stuff like that. These people have only been around for a few decades and they are working off material from people that have only been, they've been learning for a few more decades, right? Like even advertising knows how people tick and they have not had all the time that Satan has had. So that's what we need to realize is that Satan is a real threat. He he is the real deal. And when we understand him properly, we're going to better be able to understand what it is that he is actually up to. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. So we are going to be talking about Satan's methods. And this is really just a twofold thing. It's Simple, but also probably something that the vast majority of people listening right now have never heard before. 
And so, as I talked about last episode, it's really important when we're having these conversations about especially things that go against tradition to be willing, at least temporarily, to set aside our assumptions and traditions and say, I don't have to turn off my brain. In fact, I really want your brain turned on. I want you fully engaged and studying and not just, you know, because I sound convincing or or things like that, that what I say must be true. I want you to really test the things that I'm saying here. But make sure that you're not testing it against your traditions. Don't test it against what you're comfortable with. Test it against God's word, the entirety of God's word, not a single Bible verse, but the entirety of what God has revealed throughout biblical history about theological truths and things like that. Uh, Because, as I said, this is going to throw you for a loop. But as you'll see, as we uh, put together what God's word has revealed, it's going to help us not only understand more about Satan, but also a lot of the weird stuff in the Old Testament. So what are Satan's methods? If he is a spatial being who can only be in one place at one time and maybe spends a lot of his time up in heaven accusing us before God, what is he really up to? What, what are his goals? How does he do the things that he does? How can he actually be a threat to me if he's not actually interacting with me? Well, to put it simply and not so simply, Satan controls the world system through rebellious angels. Now, at first glance, you'd be like, oh yeah, demons, right? Yeah, sure, that's that's fine. No, not demons. We're not going to get into that in this episode, but uh, demons are not fallen angels. They are a whole different thing. And I can get into that in a future video, but not this one. But it's also not just that Satan has little angels, little evil angels at his beck and call that he sends all around. There is a whole world system, a whole a whole authority and kingdom structure in the spiritual realm that we probably don't realize as much as we ought to. But when we do, a lot of what we're going to see in God's word makes a lot of sense. And so I'm going to just kind of walk us through this in, in a bit of a natural progression. Just look at a, a string of passages that help us piece together this this kingdom that Satan is involved in and how he uses other rebellious angels to control the world system and to basically make sin so stinking easy for us to pursue. So the first thing to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses eight and nine. Now, before we get into this, uh, this is basically the the story of the Tower of Babel from another perspective. So as you remember in the Tower of Babel, uh, people tried to, they, they were told to spread around the land, but they said, no, we're just going to get together into one city and build this giant structure to help us reach up to the heavens. And so God came and scrambled languages and people broke off into their own nations based on their own languages. So this is that same story from a bit of a different perspective, because a lot of times we think, oh yeah, people just kind of like went off and found their own groups and, and did their own thing. But we're going to see that God actually didn't just scatter people and hope for the best, but he actually sent them off with a bit of protection from heaven. So in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what this is saying is that when God scrambled languages and divided people into their own nations at Babel, 
he fixed their borders, right? He established them. He, he set them under the rule uh, according to the number of the sons of God. Now, first glance, right? Our knee-jerk reaction is, oh yeah, the sons of Israel, sure. No, that doesn't work. And it, it doesn't work for one really, really big reason. And that is that the timing of this makes absolutely no sense. There was no 12 tribes of Israel when God scrambled the languages at Babel. The, the sons of God here are based on the uh, Septuagint reading, which, as we talked last time, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And for those who don't know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, copies of various writings, a lot of which were biblical writings that are really close to the time of the original writings. So before these documents were discovered, we had copies of copies of copies that had been passed down and preserved and things like that. But then these Dead Sea Scrolls helped us get even closer to the original copies of things like Deuteronomy, for example. And so um, in in some of your translations, your Bibles may actually say uh, the sons of Israel or something like that, because that is what has been translated through the years. But as we see, as we find uh, copies of things closer to the original texts, we see that what was actually written is the sons of God. And this is really key because, again, the sons of Israel doesn't make sense because eventually God chose Abraham as his own nation and through him Israel, and then come the 12 tribes of Israel. But one, there's not 12 nations out there. There's kind of a lot more. And Again, the timing here doesn't make sense. You know, he sent these people off and waited a long time to divide them up among the sons of Israel. But then also the sons of Israel never actually went around and oversaw these. It just doesn't make sense. What actually happened here? And I'm going to prove it in the next slide. What actually happened here is that God took a specific group of angels called the sons of God. And these are basically angelic overseers. And he set one of them over every single nation that was divided because it says that God, you know, God disinherited these nations. He sent them away from himself. He was, he was basically done interacting with them except for, as it says, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So God chose Israel for himself, but he divided the rest of the nations up amongst these spiritual beings called the sons of God. And their job was essentially to oversee these nations, to take care of them, to teach them truth, and to guide them to worshiping Yahweh God. But that didn't work out so well for them. Because what ended up happening, as we see in Psalm 82, is that God is standing in the middle of these angelic beings. And he is, he is chastising them. He is condemning them for how they have failed in their task. So Psalm 82 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, we want to be careful with how we read this word gods here. Uh, the, the word here is Elohim. Uh, so it says, God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the Elohims, right? These, these plural spiritual beings, he holds judgment and says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what God's doing here is he is saying, you had jobs. You had you had one job and you're failing at it. And what are these jobs? Well, I've, I've underlined it here. God is chastising them for not doing what they are supposed to do. What are they supposed to do? They are supposed to judge justly. They're supposed to show impartiality. They are supposed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They're supposed to maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. They're supposed to rescue the weak. They're supposed to deliver the weak and the needy from the hand of the wicked. That's what they are supposed to do. And God is is pointing out to them. It's like, you are not doing this thing that you're supposed to be doing with these nations. And so he goes on here. And keeps going. He says, they, they, these nations, these, these nations that these angels were supposed to oversee, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. Why? Because these, these sons of God were supposed to give them knowledge. They're supposed to give them understanding of God. But instead, because they don't have these things, what are they doing? They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Things are wrong. Things are not operating as they're supposed to. And God goes on and says, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Again, this is that callback to Deuteronomy 32, where he divided the nations amongst the sons of God. They are sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then, so that is um, Yahweh God's uh, chastisement of these people. Then it, it closes God's statements. And then the psalmist then continues on and says, arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit the nations. Now that ending is really fascinating and it's, it's confusing and it seems like nothing, but if we are reading it, understanding that God divided up the nations, right? He disinherited them and gave them to these sons of God and then the psalmist is ending this and saying, you know, God has pointed out the, the wickedness and the failures of the sons of God who are supposed to oversee the nations that God had disinherited. And so the psalmist concludes saying that God, you know, he, he is calling out for God to judge the earth, to take over these duties that these angelic beings have failed in. And then he he calls for or he, he calls out to a, a truth that God shall inherit the nations. Now, what we know about inheritances is an inheritance is something that you gain from someone else. So who is God or well, how is God going to inherit the nations? We know that it's through Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus inheriting the nations from? Who are the ones that are being condemned and chastised by God for failing in their duties, for failing to lead and guide all these nations spread around the world? He's inheriting them from these rebellious, angelic sons of God who are supposed to lead the nations in godliness, but instead led them in the direct opposite. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, you see all the things that these nations are doing. Why? Because that is how their overseers have guided them. Because without God directly intervening, as we see him do over and over through Israel's history, you know, we see where Israel would be without God. And that is exactly where all these other nations have gone, is that they have been, been, you know, failed by these angelic beings who are supposed to direct them to God and instead allowed to just fall into paganism and idolatry and things like that. Again, that's probably something that you haven't heard before. And it's, it's weird. 
maybe it's different. Uh, there's probably a lot of, for, for some people out there, uh, you know, trying to logic it out and say, oh, well, you know, the, these, uh, these gods that he's talking to, well, these are just, you know, he's condemning Israel for not judging rightly. But again, just like with the Deuteronomy 32 passage, that doesn't line up. We can try to explain it as God chastising Israel, but Israel was not once placed to guide the nations. Israel is not the one who's in charge of judging all people around them. Israel is not the one that Jesus Christ is inheriting the nations from. Again, this is where we talk about we got to stay consistent with what the Bible is clearly revealing. And as we read the Old Testament, as we read the language and things that God is saying and how Israel is operating in the world, how God works through Israel and not other nations, it starts to make a lot more sense when we realize that these other nations were disinherited by God at Babel, but given over to these, these angelic sons of God who then failed their duties and have not led the people into worship as they ought to, which when, when Jesus comes on the scene, then what does he do? After his ascension, he sends the the disciple, or well, before his ascension, he sends his disciples out to the nations to spread the gospel to the nations because Jesus Christ is inheriting us. You know, if you're sitting here listening and you are not part of Israel, Jesus Christ is inheriting you because we we were not, you know, we we are not being led to to worship as we ought to. And so Jesus Christ has sent, you know, the gospel around the world to reclaim the nations for himself. Now, where Satan gets involved in this then, because we we see, you know, and, and again, it, I, I'm working through this kind of quickly, and so I know that I'm not giving a really good, thorough breakdown of how all this works, but if it's true, then that, that there are these angels that are over the nations who are supposed to lead them and guide them and are maybe even in some way in charge of their morality, their culture, how they develop, what they believe, where is Satan involved in all of this? Well, we don't know exactly when it happens, but we do know that they are linked. We see in Matthew 25, 41, uh, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan has angels. Now, again, these are not demons. These are some angelic beings that are rebellious, that are working against God actively alongside Satan, and that there is a, a place called the Lake of Fire that that is waiting for them, that God made especially to hold them. Now, I'm going to argue that these angels are these exact same ones that we see in Deuteronomy 32 and then Psalm 82. These are rebellious overseers, essentially, of the nations. And again, that makes so much more sense now when we read something like Ephesians 6, 11 to 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, first of all, you know, our ears perk up, oh, the schemes of the devil, we got to stand strong against his schemes because he's out to get us. But be careful, because these are not individual attacks. Because what are the schemes of the devil? What is it that we're struggling against? We're not struggling against a lone individual out to get us. We are struggling against rulers, authorities, world forces, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. 
This is territorial language. It's kingdom language. It's talking about we are wrestling and fighting against beings who have an authority in the world, right? They are ruling something. They have authority over something. These aren't just random rebellious angels out there harassing individuals. There is an entire spiritual kingdom that we don't see, that we maybe even don't understand. But that is what our fight is against. We are not fighting against rulers. We're not fighting against individuals. We are fighting against these spiritual authorities that God established all the way back in Babel, that he has shown in Psalm 82 that they are failing in their duties. And even today, as Satan has allied himself with them, that is what we're fighting against. That is what Satan is using in, in his basically hatred of God. Now, next episode, we're going to see specifically what it is that they're doing or why they're doing it. But for now, realize that the, the language here just does not allow for us to picture our fight against Satan as this one-on-one -on -one battle. But instead, we are a group of people. We are a church who is at war against these forces, these spiritual rulers and authorities. They are not individual attacks. Now, again, we see that uh, Satan has is very clearly working with these angelic beings in charge over the nations. Because as he is tempting Jesus Christ, in Luke 4, verses 5 to 8, it says, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish." Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But the, the, for this discussion, what I want us to zero in on is Satan says that the, the dominion and the glory, right? The authority over these kingdoms has been handed over to Satan. And it is his to give to whomever he wants. But what we got to ask is, it's been given to Satan by whom? Now, we might automatically assume, oh, well, God just kind of gave up on the world and handed it over to Satan. But we don't see that. What do we see, though? We see God disinheriting the world, the all the nations except for Israel at Babel. We see that God has allowed them to keep that control and authority despite them failing it in Psalm 82. We see that even today, right after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, even today, that is what we are struggling and warring against are these nations. And these nations, these powers, these authorities, Satan has been, has been given control over these authorities. Almost like a king or a god with individual kingdoms who answer to him. Do we see what Satan's really up to? Are we starting to get it? Satan can be in only one place at one time. So what are you going to do if you are someone who you have an agenda that basically revolves around you suppressing the gospel and promoting sin? Are you going to spend your time traveling person to person, hoping to do enough damage to set them on a course? Or are you going to go after the entire world all at once? Are you going to use the authority that you have and can have access to? to to do so much more damage, to go on entire nationwide sweeps rather than individual attacks. That is what Satan is revealing, that he has the power to do, that he has authority over entire kingdoms. 
And we're going to see that he uses that power very, very well. He and the angels who fall under his authority. Now, in Revelation 20, verse 3, now we looked at this uh, in the previous episode, but I want to look at it again. So an angel, in the future, an angel comes and he binds Satan and throws him into the abyss, and he is there for a thousand years. And it says uh, why he did that in Revelation 23. So this angel throws Satan into the abyss, shuts it and seals it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Again, when we start putting these puzzle pieces together and we're not doing this as some weird like, you know, Indiana Jones thing where we're finding all these secret connections and things like that. No, what I want us to do, what I'm trying to do is show a whole and complete narrative that starts from, I mean, even in Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, showing that there is this territorial spirit kingdom thing going on, that there are rulers set over the nations, that Satan has not just even allied with necessarily, but has been given their authority, right? He is ruling over them in a certain way, and he is deceiving not individuals. His goal, his power, what he's up to is he is deceiving entire nations, every nation, because God disinherited every nation. Every nation seems to be in absolute rebellion against God because God is, is condemning all of them in Psalm 82. So wherever you're at right now, odds are very good that the, the, the son of God who was supposed to be in charge of directing you to God is not doing their job. You, you know, if you're in you know, America or something like that, you may have pockets of time where God has worked but it's not because the entire nation has been a part of that. It's because God has worked through individuals from the ground up to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, again, Satan's job here is to deceive the nations. He's bound up for a thousand years, but then it says he has to be released for a short time. What does he do? As soon as he's released again, he's not going after individuals. We see just a few verses later in Revelation 27 to 8, and when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That is Satan's method. That's all he does. He deceives nations because, again, he is an ancient enemy. He is brilliant. Thousands of years of knowing how people tick, of working in the world and things like that. He does not need to attack me. He does not need to attack you. He goes after entire nations knowing that if he does the right thing, if he infest the right areas, that entire nations are going to be swept into following sin and not following Jesus Christ. So I said, it's a simple concept, right? Oh yeah. Satan controls the world system through angels. But as we see the narrative, as we see the flow of scripture, as we see the things said about Satan and aren't filtering it through our own assumptions about how he's this, you know, malevolent, you know, hand wringing villain out to get each and every one of us on, on an individual level. When we start seeing the spiritual realm, the, the sons of God, the nations, what Satan's doing, what power he has, we start to see that he is such a, a, a much bigger threat than we may initially realize, that we may initially acknowledge. We see him as this, you know, this guy out to get us like a boogeyman. But when we do that, we are missing so much more of what he's actually doing. He, we, we, we are deceived as a whole group. We are deceived about what Satan is really doing. Spending so much time focusing on the things that he's not doing that we completely ignore what he's really 
up to, what he's really after, what his true desire is, and what he really seeks to undermine. But that's next video. Here, we're talking about Satan's methods. Now, how does he do it? How does Satan get at us? You know, what, what can we blame Satan on? You know, how, how does he go about and attack us? You know, the, the language that we see, you know, especially the armor of God, what are we building armor against? What are we, what are we dressing for battle against? Well, ultimately, Satan bombards the world with deception. And I'm just going to make this simple, and we're just going to look at Ephesians 6.16. Because I think that when we really understand the historical context of this, again, all the narrative that we're seeing about Satan, the, the nations being divided, Satan having dominion over them, Satan being stopped from deceiving nations again until he's released, and he goes right back to doing what he does. This is going to make sense when we just read Ephesians 6.16 apart from our assumptions. So, uh, it says, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Nothing new here, right? We we all know this passage, you know, you read it in, in uh, Sunday school and, and things like that. So, here is, is what's going on here. So, the armor of God is... Uh, Paul is using uh, Roman warfare language here, right? We don't have an actual sword and a shield and things like that. What he's using, though, is he is saying that there is something that we equip ourselves with, something that is important for us to use in our lives to fight against, basically, these rulers and these authorities that Paul warns us about in Ephesians 6. And so he uses Roman armor language. And you got the helmet, the breastplate, the belt of truth, the sword, the feet of the gospel... And then you've got the shield of faith. And he specifically says that this shield is meant to extinguish the flaming arrows of Satan. Here is where we run into a problem is we, we read about the armor of God and we understand, oh yeah, you know, we need to read it in context and understand Roman warfare and how shields and swords and all that looked and how they functioned. And we do that very well. But then when we get to the flaming arrows of Satan, we picture Satan as a skirmisher on the battlefield who's running at us with a bow and an arrow, and he's trying to get into one-on-one -on -one battles with us, right? We picture him like Legolas from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. I know Legolas wasn't in The Hobbit books. We're not getting into it here. But we, we picture Satan, though, as, as this single sharpshooter who is just picking us off one by one, and we have to take this huge Roman shield, and we have to, you know, with great dexterity, just, just block all these arrows that he's shooting at us, these one-on-one -on -one attacks that he's making, and, and sometimes he might get through our defenses, but if we have enough faith, then our shield will block all these attacks from him. And here is where we run into a huge issue with how we read about the armor of God, the, the, the rulers and authorities, right? The, this kingdom language and Satan's flaming arrows and where all of this just, just gets kind of jumbled up in our minds. Because again, we assume because we assume that Satan attacks us individually, that when we say that he has flaming arrows, we have to picture him seeing us on the battlefield and standing 10 feet away from us and just shooting at us. And that's what our whole life is, is Satan taking one-on-one -on -one shots against us, trying to make every shot a kill shot. But again, we've got to read about the armor of God in the context that Paul's audience at Ephesus would have understood it. So here is what they understood about how Roman shields were used, is they were full-body things meant to block, uh, you know, uh, sword attacks and spears and things like that. But 
when you were advancing through the battlefield, you know, a Roman battlefield, you know, when you were fighting, it wasn't just a bunch of one-on-one -on -one battles. It was whole lines of people fighting. And your archers were not in the front lines running at soldiers trying to get on one-on-one -on -one fights with them, right? So uh, archers were pulled all the way in the back lines and were just volleying arrows. And so what the, the shields would also be used for is they would, uh, you would stand side by side with your fellow soldiers, which let's pay attention to that in terms of church language. You would stand side by side with your fellow soldiers and link your shields side by side so that there was no, uh, uh gaps in, in the, the, forward facing part of it. But because of how arrows worked, right, they would be huge volleys from a long distance away. They wouldn't be direct shots at your chest necessarily as they would rain down from above. You would also adopt this turtle formation where you would then have soldiers in the back lines uh, from, from behind the, the front shields, putting their shields up and holding them over their heads to catch these arrows that were being shot at them from a distance. And this is what the New Testament audience would have understood about Roman armor, Roman shields especially, and also arrows fired from the enemy. Is it was not you individually need to have your own armor so that you can withstand, but that you as a church, you as a people of God, need to stand side by sides, shields linked, right? Walking by faith, your faith, your trust, your knowledge and understanding of who God is, what he desires, and what he has said. Letting that be what leads you and what protects you from the attacks of Satan. Because they knew that Satan did not look at an individual, or an archer did not look at an individual and say, I'm going to shoot this one arrow at that one individual. But instead, Roman warfare, when it came to archers, it was a volley. It was a bombardment. It was a rain of death from above. There were no targets when you were an archer during Roman warfare. You would stand in a line of archers and you would just fire shot after shot into the kill zone. You didn't know if you were going to hit anyone. You, you, you would never know if you were successful, but you knew that with enough arrows, with enough bombardment, eventually something was going to hit. Maybe not even your arrows. Maybe all your arrows would be absorbed by the shields, but enough arrows causing enough chaos, enough distraction, something was going to hit. Something was going to get through. And that is what Paul is talking about when he says that, that Satan attacks us with flaming arrows not one-on-one -on -one attacks. We live in a world controlled by Satan and the angels over the nations who report to him, who work for him, who give them their authority. We live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with the opportunity and permission and encouragement to sin. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ and knowing what we know about God, knowing what we know about what God says is right and true, what holiness is, what sin is. It's when we have a true faith in God that we are able to resist this constant bombardment of, of what how Satan has designed the world to draw us in, to tell us who we are, what we should desire, what we need, what we want. Those are the attacks of Satan that we are deflecting is a whole constant bombardment. And we are not standing there as individuals doing it. We stand there as the people of God, of followers of Jesus Christ, as a, a global body, as a universal body, 
but also as local churches, we stand together against the world that hates us, that wants us to go along with its darkness. That is what the armor of God is about. That is what Satan is doing is he is attacking us through the world. He doesn't, he probably doesn't even know my name. He probably doesn't even, he's probably never even seen you before. He doesn't have to. Satan is not going to waste his time worrying about individuals when he's got an entire world to bombard with sin, with, with ungodly worldviews and things like that. And so we need to understand what Satan's greatest weapon is, and that is worldliness. It's not putting thoughts in our head. It's not afflicting our bodies with sickness. Satan's greatest weapon is worldliness. And that is why so much of especially New Testament uh, letters and stuff warn us against worldliness. You know, worldliness isn't just this, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's like living life, but without God. No, worldliness are Satan's attacks. God is warning us over and over again not to give in to Satan's worldview, not to give in to this kingdom that Satan has set up and to fall under its authority and to pursue the things that that Satan wants us to pursue. Look, with this perspective, with this understanding, understanding worldliness as the attacks of Satan, read what God is telling us about worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 to 16 says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. Why? Because the things of the world are designed by Satan to draw us in, to draw us away from God. If anyone loves the world, the love of our Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the world's not an entity, right? The, the world's not this this creature that spawns the lust of the flesh and spawns the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. No, the world is what Satan and his angels are in control of. Go back to Ephesians 6. Go back to Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. This is what God is getting at when he's warning us about the world, is he's warning us about the world system, that thing that is owned by Satan, who rules it, not as one-on-one attacks, but through the these angels, if you will, these sons of God set over nations who are supposed to lead us into godliness. But instead, if you read any of human history, if you just go outside and look around, you'll know that they are not leading us in godliness. They've led us into the world that we have today. Right. And the world we have today is not worse somehow than than what, you know, John was writing into. It's still a world overseen by rebellious angels catering to the to creating opportunity and desire within us to pursue our own sin nature. James four, one through eight, one of my favorite passages for people struggling with anger says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war within your members. Now, really look at that. Why are you fighting? Why do you get angry? We'll have a, a quick counseling sidebar right here. Why are you getting angry? Why are you bitter against other Christians? Why are you, you know, being sinfully judgmental? Why are you uh, uh, gossiping and things like that? Well, because of the pleasures that wage war within you. You are the reason that you are angry. You are the reason that you are divisive, that you yell at your kids, that you yell at your wife, that you break stuff when you get home from work. 
you, what you want, what you truly desire is at war within you. You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not... So, we'll pause there. So, what's going on? You want something, you can't have that thing, so you attack. You hurt others. You say to them, how dare you not give me what I deserve, what I have a right to. I will hurt you. I will hurt the world around me. I will make the world feel my wrath because... My God has not been satisfied. My God has not been given proper worship. That is ungodly thinking. You know, we don't have just all bad tempers and things like that. We are in direct alignment with the world's thinking when we get angry, when our, our desires, our lusts, the things that we think we need or deserve are so dominant that we will hurt others or the world around us when we don't get what we want says, um, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Sidebar number two, this is a direct opposition to the prosperity gospel. It literally says, if you are praying to God and not getting answers, it's probably because you are asking selfishly because you are greedy, because you are praying to God saying, God, be my genie. Give me what I want. I have enough faith. I've put in enough time. Give me what I deserve. Give me what I'm owed. This is what James is getting at here. This selfish worldly mentality of I want, I deserve. So I will hurt those around me or I will keep begging God and say, God, I want you to cater to my desires. I want, I'm going to tell you what I need and you are going to respond. Then he goes on in verse four, you adulteresses. Now, maybe that wording is lost on us and I don't know what I can get away with YouTube yet. So, uh, you know, we, we, as, as people of God, you know, we are described as the bride of Christ, right? And so when we are living sinfully, when we are pursuing sinful worldly pleasures, we are essentially cheating on Jesus Christ. We are acting as adulteresses because we're the wife in this situation. It says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Look at this divide. You can either be for God or you can be for the world. When you're angry, when you're, when you're praying to God and just saying, you know, God, here's what I want. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to doubt you. I'm going to be angry at you. We are pursuing worldliness in that way. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. Again, you know, jealousy can, can have a godly sense to it, right? If God loves us, if, if we belong to him, he's not going to let us go adulterousing out and just, you know, mixing with the world and being okay with it. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Now, before we jump ahead, because some of you may know where I'm going here, and you're going to say, oh, that's one of those what about verses. It is. But right now, listen to what James has established. All right. We follow God when we do not follow the world. When we embrace worldliness, we resist God. When we resist worldliness, it's because we are embracing God. Now look at what he says next. After, after establishing all this talk about worldliness, about our desires, about thinking like the rest of the world, 
Then notice what he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, some of you, again, you may have thought, as we've been going through this, whether the last video or this one, you may have thought, well, what about James, where it says to resist the devil and he'll flee from you? Surely that means that Satan is creeping up on you and you have to resist him to make him scamper away. But that doesn't make sense in the context of what James is talking about. He is talking about embracing all of worldliness, of thinking like the world. And then in the midst of telling us about worldliness versus God, then he brings in and says, resist the devil, draw near to God. So clearly embracing worldliness is the same as embracing Satan. That's all that James is getting at here. That James knows where the the source of this desire for worldliness comes from. It's not some accidental thing. It's not just humans being humans. There is a satanic influence to all this stuff that draws us away from God, that leads us to bickering with others, to being hateful, to being hurtful, to being greedy and selfish. There is a darkness there that is part of this, this, this fight against these rulers and authorities in the world, against the worldliness that they are just propagating and spreading and leading us into. And if we resist the world, we are resisting Satan. If we want to resist Satan, we have to resist the worldliness that he stands for, that he is spreading around, because that is how he does what he does. And we're starting to get a picture of that in James here. Instead, though, draw near to God. Don't draw near to the world. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How we live, the things that we desire, what we allow to dictate, what we think we need, or who we think we are, we can allow it to come from God, or we can allow it to come from Satan. And again, Satan's not whispering it to us. It comes from Satan when we are listening to the rest of the world that he is in charge of. So to sum it up, uh, as I already explained, I jumped ahead on my slide, uh, but the source of fighting, of conflicts, of sin in our lives is our pleasures. Our pleasures come from when we listen to the world. So the cure is to be subject to God, resisting the devil, and he will flee from us. Again, it's not one-on-one attacks. It is Satan. To embrace the world is to embrace Satan. To resist the world is to resist Satan. To embrace God is to not be any part of any of that. Now, we also see the warning in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, the language here has always fascinated me. And this is one of the, the, uh, the, the truths that God used to really transform my own thinking and how I understood worldliness. So it says that we can either be transformed by the Spirit or we can be conformed to the world. Now, notice the wording there is passive. It's not conform, do not conform yourself to the world, but conform yourself to uh, the Spirit. But instead, either we can let the world conform us, we can let the world shape us like Plato, we can let it take who we are naturally and just mold us in a certain way, or we can become a totally new creation. We can be transformed. We can be something wholly different from worldliness by the renewing of our minds. And who renews our minds? The Holy Spirit when we are saved. And it's through that that we will know the will of God.
So if you are following worldliness, if you are following the pattern of Satan in the world, you are not going to know the will of God. You're not going to understand who God is, as James pointed out to us, right? So don't be conformed to the world because the world is against God. The world is designed to draw us away from God, to, to give us an identity, to give us a purpose, to give us desires, but not a godly identity, not a godly purpose, and not godly desires. We cannot be followers of Jesus Christ who also are so wrapped up in the rest of the world and act like there's no problem there. Being worldly does not remove your salvation. Don't, don't mishear that but you are not living the life that God calls for you to when you are so involved in worldliness that you are just aligning yourself with Satan and not even realizing it. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Again, this is not some weird dichotomy where spirit things are good and physical things are evil. This is talking about two different spiritual realities, either the spiritual reality of God or the spiritual reality of earthly things with Satan and his kingdom. Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Again, do you want to follow God? Do you want to live a victorious Christian life? It's not about doing a bunch of things. It's about where you're setting your identity, where you're setting your desires, what you allow to dictate who you are and what you do. We are called to deny ungodliness and worldly desires because they come from Satan. And instead, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Finally, I want to look at 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Again, soldier talk, right? Understanding the context is if you are a soldier, you are enlisted. It's not necessarily like today where you can be a soldier who's, you know, maybe off duty or on call or things like that. Uh, you know, soldiers then, when they were in active service, they were focused on what, what their government had called them to. And so here, this compares it to our Christian life, that if we are soldiers for Jesus Christ, if we are at war against the world, we're not going to busy ourselves with the affairs of this life because the affairs of this life are not something that we just do neutrally. It's not just, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm also going to, you know, spend a lot of my time and my money and my thinking and find my identity and all this worldly stuff. There's no neutrality in things like that. It's not just, oh, you know, I prefer chocolate ice cream versus vanilla. That's not how worldliness works. If you are choosing to envelop yourself in worldliness, you are choosing to do precisely what Satan has designed the world to do. You are taking the bait that he sprinkles out. You are falling for every single trap that he has laid out. Because Satan knows that he doesn't need to come whisper to us. He doesn't need to tempt us individually. He doesn't need to give us evil thoughts. We are just fine on our own. We love sin. We love worldliness. We love fitting in. We love people telling us who we are and what to do. We love living like people that we are envious of. We've got all kinds of stuff in our hearts that leads us to worldliness. And so Satan, being, you know, an ancient enemy, he knows that we just need the opportunity to act on our sinful desires, which will create a vicious cycle for our lives. And this is where I think a lot of people find themselves 
is, you know, I talked in the first video about how we often say, oh, you know, Satan's just tempting me and I just have to resist Satan. And people spend entire lives fighting against the same sins because they, they blame what is their fault on an outside force. And because of that, they don't know how they got there in the first place. So let's see what James says again. So James 1, 13 to 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But we also can't blame Satan, because each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Why are you tempted? Why are you tempted with alcohol, anger, porn, laziness, overeating? Where do all these temptations come from? Why do we struggle against these things? It's not because Satan is putting thoughts in your head. It's not because Satan is attacking you as we think that he is. It is because we have a desire in our hearts. We have something that we truly want. We want comfort. We want power. We want control. We want pleasure. We want the things that other people have. We want the world to go precisely how we think it should. And we want distraction when it doesn't. We have all these things in our life, all these sinful desires in our hearts that we just want to act on. And temptation comes when our desires, when we allow them to sit, when we start believing our own desires, when we start believing that this will make me happy, this will bring satisfaction, this is who I need to be. It's when we start believing those things that we are then drawn towards wanting to act on them. And simultaneously, we, we see the things around us. You know, we see the proliferation of pornography. We see the easy distraction of social media or finding our identity in social media or just, you know, scrolling through stuff and being entertained and not having to engage our brains. And so we get addicted to technology. And, you know, you, you know what you struggle with. You know what sin you struggle with. And a lot of that can come because we see the things in the world. We see how other people are made happy. We see how it's pushed at us and, and it's advertised and it's so easy. And so many people are doing it that we say, man, maybe, maybe there is something there. Maybe there is something that would make me happy. And so this creates a vicious cycle in our lives because we will have our own sinful desires that we want to act on. And then we'll look around the world and say, wow, I can fulfill my desire in so many different ways. Maybe I'll do it, but I'll, maybe I shouldn't yet. But then enough time passes. We dwell on it enough. We, we talk ourselves into it. We rationalize it. We explain it away. We drift further from God to where we don't even realize that we've stepped out of the light and into darkness. And then we look at the world's promises. We look at what Satan makes available to us in the world. And we say, yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to act on it. I'm going to do what I probably shouldn't, but I am convinced that this is going to make me happy. I'm convinced it's going to bring satisfaction. I am convinced that because of who I am, what my identity is, that this is what I have to do. And so we act on it and we, we buy into the world's promises or flip side. We listen to the world's promises. We, we immerse ourselves in worldliness. We immerse ourselves in secular TV and in even weak Christian theology. You know, again, I bring out the prosperity gospel that plays on our greed, you know, things like that. We listen to all these things that the world says, this is who you are. This is what you need. This is what you want. This, this, we promise you will give you that thing that you feel you're missing. And so then that becomes a desire. 
well, yeah, yeah, I, I do deserve happiness in my marriage. I do deserve to to live out who I truly am on the inside. I do deserve to to have this the stuff from Amazon and not deny myself. I do deserve to feel good. I do deserve to go party. I do deserve freedom from obligations. Or I deserve peace. I deserve comfort. I deserve something good because I only get this one life. And so we keep immersing ourselves in worldliness and in the beliefs and in the religion of Satan and his angels. And then what they tell us to desire suddenly becomes our own desires. And so on and on this goes. But I want to point out that James says that being tempted itself is not the sin. It's that when our desire conceives, right, when we dwell on it, when we think about it, when we allow it to keep to keep pushing us and, 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 and giving us promises that this is what we need. That's when it gives birth to sin. So a lot of us, we're going to spend our lives just stuck in this, this loop. And, and the more we repent to God, the more we turn to him, the more we, we rely on him and believe him and follow him instead of following worldliness, as James four talks about, the more we're going to see ourselves overcoming these things because Jesus Christ has already won the victory for us over any temptation that we think we have to give in to. But as we allow it to dwell, as we allow ourselves to believe it, that is when it leads to sinful action. That is when we give in. That is when we spend money irresponsibly. That is when we, you know, yell, get angry, commit adultery, whether physically or digitally. That is when we do whatever it is that we struggle with because we finally said, yes, I'm going to see if my desire can finally be fulfilled. If I can finally be happy by acting on it. And it's when we act that we act, that, that we are sinning. So again, this is why I say Satan does not need to tempt us individually. We do not need his help. We have desires all on our own that, that he doesn't even need to help us with. The only thing that we need is opportunity to act on that desire, right? If you are someone who, who wants to be rich or who, who wants a lot of money, right? You can, you can have that desire, but if you are stuck in prison and don't have an opportunity to act on that desire, then, then you can't do anything about it. But if you're given the opportunity and you can steal from someone, you can rob something, Maybe you can just download some music or movies online because you don't want to spend a few bucks on it. When we believe that we deserve these things, the only thing we need is opportunity to act on them. And so the true danger of worldliness, right? What Satan's really getting up to where we are so blind is that it gives us permission and opportunity to pursue our own sinful desires, that is what Satan is getting up to, is he is creating a whole world. He is, he is laying out the buffet, saying, hey, I know you're hungry. Come check it out. You don't need to starve. Just, just come see. You know, I've got, I've got something here for everybody. That is what Satan's doing in the world. He doesn't need to know your name. He doesn't need to know your face. He doesn't even need to know you exist. He just needs to know that there is a whole world full of sinful humans who love to rebel against God, who love to make themselves their own gods, to pursue their own desires, to do what they want. All he needs to do is give us permission to say that it's okay and opportunity to act on it. 
And if we are not living for God, if we are not pursuing him, if we are not turning to God and actively choosing to reject the world, we're going to get stuck in that loop. We're going to have sinful desires and see what the world promises. We're going to see the world promising us things and turn that into a desire. And we're going to get stuck in that loop that in time, I guarantee you is going to lead to sin. Because if we are spending our days, our weeks, our months, spending the majority of our time focusing on our own desires, on the things that make us happy, on worldliness, and giving God a fraction of our day or a fraction of our week, it should be no surprise that we act like someone who is in love with the world. Because at the end of the day, a lot of us are. We are still followers of Jesus Christ. We still have the security that his death, burial, and resurrection gave us. But we are not living like the people of God. We live like people of Satan. We act like citizens of his kingdom and not the kingdom of God. What is Satan up to? Just to, to sum kind of a big discussion up. He rules the world through rebellious angels who are originally tasked with leading the nations in godliness. We saw this in Deuteronomy 32. These angels, as we saw in Psalm 82, now lead nations in ungodly worldviews. They don't promote godliness. They don't promote the things that God desires for nations to pursue. Instead, they promote whatever they're promoting, right? It changes over time, but at the end of the day, it's still catering towards sinful humans. These worldviews, informed by these rebellious angels, these authorities, these rulers over the nations that we wage war against, they inform our desires by telling us what we want and need. And I would add who we are. And then Satan creates a world that gives us opportunity to act on those desires. That is the war that we're fighting. It is huge. It is everywhere. It is all in your phone. It's on the stuff that we want to stream. It's on the stuff that we believe about ourselves. It's part of our upbringing. Next video, next episode, we are going to see so many ways that worldliness infests our minds that we are completely unaware of. So to wrap it up, as you are kind of thinking through this, trying to recognize it, trying to, to now start living in this world, maybe seeing it differently, seeing that you know, the, these one-on-one -on -one attacks that we worry about from Satan are often just us living in the world, living like citizens of, of this kingdom, and it just having its natural repercussions. I want you to look at the world around you and see how it caters to every type of sinful desire. You know, a lot of times we think about sinful desires as these really gross, horrible things, but, you know, the world around you, the, the world that Satan has designed... It's also perfectly catered for people who want to be goody-goody, who want to prove their goodness, who want to find their identity in how smart they are, in how godly they are even. And so, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with godliness. Please don't mishear that. But there are so many of us, and, and this is how I was before Jesus Christ saved me, is I was in church, right? I was doing all the good stuff. I was, I was a good Christian boy because... My thinking was, well, if I, you know, I hear that Christians do this. And so if I do this, that must mean I'm a Christian. So I would do Christian stuff. And a lot of us are buying that lie that as long as we are ticking a box, as long as we're doing an action, as long as we're sharing Bible verses and the right news sources and the right blogs and pictures and stuff on Facebook, as long as we're doing stuff and appearing holy, then we're good. 
but a lot of people are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire saying, whoa, Jesus, I did all this stuff. And what's Jesus going to say to them? I never knew you because we don't know him there. The entire world is perfectly catered for you to live out every sinful desire you have the most horrible, you know, culturally unacceptable or socially unacceptable things or the things that, you know, are seem really good on the outside, you know, working really hard, sometimes at the expense of ignoring your family, reading the Bible so that you can feel like you did a good deed for the day, saying the right stuff, doing the right stuff, wearing the right stuff. There is a limitless amount of ways for us to, to live like the rest of the world and even be convinced that we are in the will of God. There is so much to this world that Satan has designed than we see. And I hope with these last two videos and with the next three plus videos that we get into that we can better start seeing just how real Satan is in the world and how the, the threats that we thought were so real are really part of a much bigger scheme that he's got going on. And the reason that we struggle is because we are biting into that bait, right? Hook, line, and sinker. We are, we are running up to the buffet, loading up our plates and then being like, Oh man, how did this get here? We are, are walking blindly into Satan's world and not even realizing it. So please Christian, please see the world for what it really is. Listen to God's warnings. Understand that it's not just God saying, Hey, don't do that. That's not a good idea. He's literally calling you away from pursuing Satan and his rebellion. He's calling you out of the kingdom of darkness and into his own kingdom to live like a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not as a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. Second, I want you to pay attention to your next temptation. So let's make this a little more practical. Pay attention to your next temptation and ask yourself, what sinful desire does this promise to fulfill? So whatever temptation you have, really ask yourself, what am I desiring in this moment? What am I believing about what I need or deserve? What am I believing that this will offer me? Now that can be physical, sinful things, you know, buying stuff or, or eating or drinking or whatever. It can also be our actions. You know, why do I want to lie? Why do I want to gossip? Why do I want to get angry? Because anger is a choice. Why do I want to do these things? What do I promise this will give me? What, wh why do I think this will make me feel better, make me happier, bring satisfaction? give me control over my situation? Why do we believe the things that we believe about sin that keeps making it so appealing to us, so tantalizing, so enticing and alluring, as James says? So pay attention to those things. Really start seeing the world for what it is, and you might start seeing your sin for what it is as well. I'm not saying it's the guaranteed cure, because once you know how it works, you're going to overcome it, but... What I can say from my own experience, from talking to people, is that the more we understand what's really going on in this world, the more we see just how desperately we need Jesus Christ, just how much we have to rely on him, that he's not this, you know, breaking case of emergency thing, that we need him literally every single moment of our day, because we are constantly tempted to be conformed to this world. And so we have got to walk in full surrender to him. It's not easy. 
I don't even know if it's possible to do it perfectly. I certainly don't. But the more we see our own depravity and what the world offers and promises us, the more we see everything that we need to abandon, everything that we need to surrender at the foot of the cross as we love and pursue Jesus Christ. So next time, so we've talked about Satan's powers and limitations. We've talked about, in a broad sense, what he's up to. Now, our next time, we are going to talk about what him and his angels are doing, what their motivation is, what their end goal is, because there is a reason that they don't just sit back and let things just take their natural course. There is a reason that they want us to buy into godliness, that they want people to be blinded to the gospel, but also a reason why they want Christians to just sit and wallow and be stuck as baby Christians who just, just waste away their life until they die and enter the kingdom of heaven. So we'll get into that next video or next video in this series anyway. But, um, if you enjoyed this video, please like it. Please share it with people that you think would be benefited by it. Um, remember to subscribe because uh, it lets YouTube know that people find this channel valuable. And it also just lets you keep up and uh, not let my little little channel get swallowed up with all the uh, big names that you probably subscribe to. Um, and again, if you appreciate what I've been doing, how this channel works, what this ministry is seeking to do in equipping you to think biblically about every area of life, then please just consider supporting me every month at patreon.com slash onward in the faith. See you in the next video. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others. Or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.